Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 154. Today's topic is DSA's Green New Deal, Part 8. So DSA is Democratic Socialists of America, and they have a Green New Deal that was published in February. We've been looking at that over eight previous episodes. If you have trouble finding any of the other episodes, please email me and I will send you a playlist. So we'll be talking about the Green New Deal in a few minutes, but first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. It cannot be emphasized too often or too strongly that we have a serious problem to solve in the form of climate change, but we have a problem with climate change because we have a problem with leadership. So in terms of climate change, the catastrophic effects of climate change are not in the vague and unspecified future, but they are here and now and in the recent past. So because of climate change, we are losing our oceans. Climate change is, because, is caused by an excess of CO2, carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere. That carbon dioxide is being absorbed by the oceans, causing the oceans to become more acidic. This has a negative impact on the ecosystems of the oceans, not least of all the coral reefs. In the past decade or so, the coral reefs have virtually died off because of ocean acidification and also because of the warming of the ocean because the oceans are absorbing heat from the atmosphere. Now, for the coral reefs to die off, this is serious because a fourth of the species in the oceans are a part of the coral reef habitats. Historically, a billion people around the world have relied for part of their livelihood on the biological abundance of the coral reefs, partly because of fishing and partly because of tourism. I myself have been snorkeling and scuba diving in Cozumel, Mexico, and I tell you, you'll never see such vivid colors anywhere in the world. And people who have been diving recently are just horrified by what they see. We also, because of climate change, because the average global temperature is now 1.1 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Fahrenheit over what it was, and that's just an average. Some places are experiencing a greater rise in the average annual temperature. But because of this rise, we have a melting of glaciers and snow caps. So in the past, glaciers and snow caps have provided a steady supply of fresh water to the people and the wildlife and the ecosystems and the regions downstream from the mountaintops. Glaciers and snow caps also provide a cooling effect on the regions below. As the snow caps melt, this cooling effect goes away, as does the supply of fresh water that glaciers and snow caps otherwise provide. So these are catastrophic changes that have already occurred, and yet we have leadership in government, in business, and in media that cannot be bothered to draw attention to this 
or to take leadership and make positive changes. And I haven't named 1% of what's going on. We also have droughts. Drought means, I mean, we have record droughts. Drought means fewer people have the water they need to drink. Fewer people have the water they need for their crops. More people die of kidney failure. More people have to move in order to live. And this is not your fault or mine. It is the fault of a corrupt leadership that is myopic, that is short-sighted, and it is on the take, and it is incapable, apparently, of providing the leadership that we need. Most people in the United States, as hard as the media and the business elites and the political elites work to try to brainwash us, still two-thirds of Americans want meaningful action on climate change, and yet we don't get it because we have leadership that is corrupt and quite often not very bright either. Now, if somebody's not very bright, they're still a person. But you don't put them in positions of leadership, especially if they are corrupt. So the solution is to re-examine our priorities and to question what we hear, to get our information from reliable sources, and to practice political activism as if our lives depended on it, because they do. It takes innocence or naivete to believe that our lives are not being threatened moment by moment, and especially as time progresses. So the solution is to practice the three pillars of activism, which is educate, organize, and agitate. Educate means to inform yourself and others. Organize means to show up at organizations that are making a positive difference. You might even decide to create an organization. You certainly need to collaborate and build bridges with other organizations. And lastly, we need to agitate. And that's what the Climate Report is all about. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. And to the extent that I mention any people or organizations in this program, I am nonetheless giving my own opinions and not theirs. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. And if you enjoy this content, I invite you to go to theclimatereport.net to find more episodes and playlists, and also my blog. That's theclimatereport.net. Now, let's continue reading through the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America's version of the Green New Deal. Now, there are different versions of the Green New Deal. The three that I am most interested in and knowledgeable of include this one, the DSA's version, also the Congressional version, that is the one that was introduced in Congress this year, early in 2019, and also the Green Party's version of the Green New Deal. If you would like links to any of those, I invite you to email me at info at theclimatereport.net. So we are on guiding principle number three of the DSA's version of the Green New Deal. I've divided this into six different parts, letters A through F. So here's letter A. 
we will center the working class in a just transition to a societal to an economy of societal and ecological care. But first, at the end of the last episode, there was a sentence that I really didn't get to, and it's excellent. It said, The future is a public good, not a private luxury. The future is a public good, not a private luxury. Let's talk about that for just a minute. So we have a society that is pretty much enthralled to something called the free market. Now the term free market is sometimes synonymous with capitalism. It's sometimes synonymous with the free enterprise system. But in any event, it's an ideology. It is it wants you people, the proponents of the free market system want you to believe that it is scientific or that it is objective. They want you to believe that it's just kind of the way the world works. And if we want to go against the way the world works, well, then we're going against the grain, and we might as well deny the law of gravity. It just is what it is. But the free market system is not a natural law. It is a set of ideas. I call it the free market fairy tale because there are so many things that it claims that just don't turn out to be true. But we have allowed the free market uh, fairy tale to turn us into a society of people who are supposed to be rugged individualists, but we're, we're a society of people that in some respects are hyper-competitive. We have decided to exalt competition over cooperation. And we have decided to virtually ignore the public assets that we all depend on. So the free market ideology depends heavily on this idea that property rights are virtually sacred, that the right to private property, the right to acquire private property, the right to turn your private property into profit is sacred, the right to accumulate property is sacred. And some of that might be okay in moderation, but we don't have moderation. And because of free market ideology, we have been conditioned to virtually ignore public assets. So, for example, the climate is a public asset. The entire public of the entire world depends on a habitable and agreeable climate. Public assets should be managed for the benefit of the public. So oil companies should not be allowed to profit from the destruction of public assets. Oil companies should not be allowed to profit from the destruction of a habitable climate. And fossil fuel companies should not be allowed to profit from the destruction of clean water. They should not be allowed to profit from water pollution. They should not be allowed to profit from air pollution. Fossil fuel companies should not be allowed to make private profit in activities that are damaging to public health. Coal mining companies should not be able to shift the cost of coal mining related diseases onto their workers. Petrochemical companies should not be allowed to shift the cost of their public health problems onto the public 
while making away like a bandit in terms of their profits. So the sentence we were looking at here is, the future is a public good, not a private luxury. To be a really vivid example of this is air travel, especially luxury-oriented air travel. So there's a great deal of air travel that is oriented toward luxury. When people feel entitled to private jets, they are ignoring the fact that the future is a public good, not a private luxury. When oil companies feel entitled to have the American military go to bat for them so as to control oil prices and to control the countries where they get oil, then they are acting like they are entitled to destroy our future for the sake of their profits and for the sake of private luxury. So to the extent that we have to that we have private property, the interest in private property needs to be balanced with the public good. And two thirds of Americans know what I'm talking about. Most of the other third have been brainwashed by free market ideology such that they are willing to live in poverty and economic stress because they've been led to believe in trickle-down economics, which is just another word for the free market ideology. But it's the corrupt 1% or the corrupt one-tenth of 1% that keeps all of this in place, and we will allow them to keep it in place at our peril. Now, back to guiding principle number three, letter A. We will center the working class in a just transition to an economy of societal and ecological care. So a key phrase here is just transition. In other words, we need to, tra- we need to decarbonize our economy. That means a radical transformation. It, that means a radical transformation in our economy. It means a radical transformation in our transportation system. It means a radical transformation in our food system, just for starters. And what the DSA is saying here is that in, because it's a radical transformation, we're not going to do this on the backs of the poor or on the backs of the working class. That's why we're talking about things like a universal basic income. That's why we're talking about things like a federal jobs guarantee. And that's, that's important stuff, and it is fair, and it is just. But how quickly we, we forget that we can create a whole lot more jobs with solar power and wind power and mass transit and a state-of-the-art electrical grid than we can ever create by spending the same amount of money on fossil fuels and the military. Fossil fuels and the military create three to five jobs for every million dollars spent. On the other hand, solar power and wind power and a state-of-the-art electrical grid and mass transit. These create between 10 and 20 jobs per million dollars spent. In fact, mass transit, according to a study that I saw, mass transit will create 22 new jobs for every million dollars spent. But there's a difference between jobs and profits. Some industries are very profitable but don't create very many jobs. 
Some industries create a lot of jobs but are not very profitable. We need to really pay attention in our economy and distinguish between industries that create jobs versus industries that generate a lot of profits. Fossil fuel industries generate a lot of profits because when you dig coal or oil out of the ground, then it's black gold. It's very profitable. That doesn't mean it creates a lot of jobs, nor does it mean it's good for society. So in the Ohio River Valley here, we have a proposed petrochemical complex going in. The investors are willing to invest $400 billion. And of course, politicians are falling all over themselves, wanting to roll out the red carpet, to mix a metaphor, but wanting to roll out the med red carpet for these multi-billion dollar investments. And they talk about creating jobs, but they, they don't create very many jobs. They create a lot of profits. They create a lot of diseases in terms of public health, but they don't create very many jobs. They leave a lot of environmental destruction in their wake, but they don't create very many jobs. If we want jobs, we will create new industries, industries that are not very profitable to the mega corporations, but they are very beneficial to our economy and very beneficial to real people. So how do we get off on this tangent? Well, we were talking about centering the working class in a just transition. We need a, a radical transformation. We will have a radical transformation. There are no win-win revolutions. We need to create a revolution that is good for the 99%, but not really good for the pocketbooks of the 1%. The 1% will benefit because we will have a healthier world. But we can't do that if our sole focus is on the economic well-being of the 1%. Another key phrase here is we will transition to an economy of societal and ecological care. In other words, we will care for society and for our ecology or our environment Whereas now what we care for is the 1%. Currently the purpose of government is to benefit the 1%. What we have is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor and middle class. The rich, especially the very rich, have a social safety net. Meanwhile, the poor and the middle class have to fend for themselves. The poor and the middle class have to be rugged individualists while the government extends a lot of TLC to the very rich. Because that's what it is when profits are more important than jobs and profits are more important than environmental health and profits are more important than the education and the health of the 99%. So we are still on guiding principle number three in the DSA's Green New Deal. We just talked about letter A. Letter B is guarantee a job with union wages and benefits to everyone who wants one. So let's talk about unions. Now, at some point along the way, when I was very young, I was indoctrinated 
in the idea that unions are bad. That's because I had been indoctrinated in the free market fairy tale at home and in the media and in our educational system. And that's what I believed for a long time. But the free market fairy tale is kind of like believing in Santa Claus. You get to a point where, you know, that's not making a lot of sense anymore. So here's one thing. Uh, let's say you don't have a union. Then you are an individual who is expected to negotiate with concentrated power. An individual who is not in a union is supposed to negotiate with the company, which is a big corporation. I mean, a lot of companies aren't big corporations, but the idea is that corporations are allowed to consolidate endlessly. So you have a corporation which represents concentrated wealth and power going up against a non-unionized worker. So concentrated wealth and power versus non-unionized worker, game over. The question is, why are corporations allowed to consolidate endlessly and pool their resources, whereas we have a lot of anti-union laws and we expect workers that are not represented by a union to negotiate favorable terms with corporations that are allowed to endlessly consolidate. Am I making any sense on that? So what I'm saying is that we have laws that are pro-corporate and anti-union, which results in anything but a level playing field. Plus, let's talk about union wages for just a minute. Let's say for the sake of discussion that without a union, a worker is able to get a $15 an hour job, whereas with a union, the worker would be able to get a $30 an hour job. So all things remaining equal in this hypothetical example, one worker has a $15 an hour non-union job, whereas another worker has a $30 an hour union job. One question is, which one is going to be able to put more money into the local economy? So the union worker can put more money into the local economy, whereas the non-union worker, they're expected to sacrifice their wages for the sake of profits, and profits, for the most part, don't get spent in the local economy. So unions are good for the local economy, and unions are even good for the non-union worker in the local economy. Let's say you're not lucky enough to get a union job, you still benefit from the prevalence of unions in your community because those union workers are spending money in your community. Plus, the fact that your community has union jobs tends to drive up the price of wages, and that benefits non-union workers. Here's another benefit of unions. Unions traditionally bargain for benefits that benefit society generally. Unions traditionally are, have a positive impact on health benefits uh, provided by government. So, moving on. Letter C under guiding principle number three is, is that we will create millions of public sector jobs. So, what are some examples of public sector jobs? So a public sector job is a government job. Government jobs include soldiers, 
firefighters, teachers. Government jobs also include EPA regulators, so regulators with the Environmental Protection Agency. Government jobs also include people at the Agricultural Extension Office who assist farmers. But let, let's look at soldiers uh, for just a minute. There are people who pretend to believe in the American free enterprise system and they believe that the least government is the best. They're always wanting to minimize government. They're always wanting to say government is inept and government is incompetent and government should be minimized. Those same people are the ones who want to feed a bloated military budget. People who consider themselves conservatives and believe that government can't do anything right, and yet they want one in four federal tax dollars to go to the Pentagon, which is the most wasteful, unaccountable department in the government. So if we're going to save our planet and save our society, we need to rethink a lot of things. And one of the things we need to rethink is this silly notion that government is categorically inept or incompetent or wasteful. A friend of mine in West Virginia pointed out that, EPA, that regulations create jobs. So if you have regulations that are strongly enforced and those regulations are for the purpose of making sure the coal industry or the fracking industry doesn't pollute the water, pollute the soil, pollute the air, that you're creating jobs by not only having regulations but enforcing regulations. It's not bad for the economy to have regulations. In fact, it's good for the economy insofar as regulations create jobs because you need regulators to do, that, to do their job, plus every company is going to have compliance officers, so the company has to hire people to make sure they comply with environmental regulations. Thereby, regulations create jobs. Now, these pro-industry propagandists want you to think that regulations are bad for business. They're not bad for business, but they might be bad for profits. And we should not allow these companies to make profits at the expense of public health. Most Americans would agree if you gave them a chance to think about it, but the media, which is one of the three corrupt sectors of our uh, society, the media, since it's owned by big business, is not going to talk about this very, uh, very often. You can't count on the media to point out the fact that environmental regulations are good for the economy. They're not just good for the air, the water, the soil, and public health. They are good for the economy. Another thing the pro-business propagandists want you to think is that you have to choose between jobs and the environment. Nothing could be further from the truth. Sometimes you have to choose between profits and the environment, but a healthy environment is good for jobs. For example, my friend Dustin White in West Virginia with OVEC, Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition, gave me an example to illustrate that point, but we're going to have to talk about that next time. We have about a minute. Let me leave you something to think about. So we have a society that because we have been polluted with what I call free market ideology, 
we have come to completely ignore the benefits of public health. We have come to ignore the benefits of government regulation that, that is good for public health, good for the environment. We have been sold something called trickle-down economics, which ignores the fact that profits typically do not trickle down. But what does trickle down is the health problems from an out-of-control fossil fuel industry and an out-of-control agribusiness industry and an out-of-control automaker industry. So to save the planet and to save our society, we need to rethink everything, including the importance of public health and the need to manage our public assets. That's all for now. Thanks for joining me. Come back next time.